It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. The 20th century offered a chance to bid farewell to the worst excesses of the 20th. It had become known as the Age of Dictatorship for the horrors perpetrated by Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong, and by dozens of other despots of both the political left and right, from Chile to Cambodia. What can we learn about the way these men rose to power and held on to it? Why did some survive while others were brought down? And is the Age of Dictatorship over? Or has autocracy merely evolved? My guest is the historian Frank Decutter, a professor at the University of Hong Kong and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's combed through archival records and personal accounts to delve deep into the psyche of communist China. He won the Samuel Johnson Prize for his book Mao's Great Famine, an unflinching investigation into the terrors of the Great Leap Forward. But in his new book, Decutter looks beyond China to try to identify characteristics common to dictators through time and across the world. Alongside Mao, Hitler, Stalin and Mussolini, he's chosen four comparatively minor players in the annals of autocracy. Kim Il-sung in North Korea, Ceausescu in Romania, Mengistu in Ethiopia and in Haiti, Papa Doc Duvalier. And he uses these eight to answer the question, how to be a dictator. Frank Decutter, welcome to The Economist Asks. Well, hello, and thank you so much for having me. Tell me, what defines a dictator as opposed to your common or garden autocrat? Well, I, I have to confess that I may have failed to clarify that in the book. <laughs> I thought it was pretty clear what a dictator is. But the one thing I've learned since it was published is that definitions vary a great deal. I have people come up to me and tell me that their boss is a dictator, their wife is a dictator, their husband is a dictator, the local landlord is a dictator, Boris Johnson is a dictator, Trump is a dictator, the list goes on on and on and on. So here's a definition for you. We have two modes of governance that run throughout the 20th century. One tries, hard as this may be, to separate out powers. In other words, have checks and balances, an independent judicial system, elections. And the other one is very much opposed to it and believes that power must be concentrated in the hands of one individual or one party state. So those who concentrate power are the dictators. The other ones are democracies. Well, that's at least clear once we put aside our spouses or our landlords. And where do you think the earliest examples of dictators begin? Would you go all the way back, say, to 
ancient Rome, or is it a more modern concept? Which century yields us the first modern dictator? I do start with Louis XIV, but what I'm trying to point out is that in his case, he has a divine right to rule. He's appealing to the aristocracy at court, not to ordinary people. But that changes, of course, when one of his descendants is beheaded in 1789. And that, to me, is the start of a very new political principle in which power is vested in the people. The people are sovereign. So from there onwards, I think we gradually in Europe and gradually elsewhere throughout the 20th century enter an age of democracy in that you must appeal to the people. You can either do so by going to the ballot box and be elected, or if you're a dictator, you can pretend somehow that the people really truly love you, even though they never voted for you. But this is surely the paradox of dictatorship in the 20th century, that even dictators ultimately wish to portray themselves as democratic figures. And democracy, by definition, is a modern political philosophy, and so are dictators. And what is it about the 20th century that has enabled the rise of, probably if you ask people on the street who they associate with dictatorship, Hitler and Stalin, come very readily to mind? Is that a kind of example of a recency bias that we remember things that are relatively recent in history, or simply that the 20th century did produce more dictatorship than others? Well, oddly enough, the more advances democracy makes, the more resistance there is on the part of dictatorships. But surely there is another element there too, and that is the Bolshevik Revolution 1917. Two people matter a great deal. One is Marx, who is of course a philosopher of the 19th century, and provides a vision for people who describe themselves as communists. But then there's also Lenin, and he provides the tool to carry out revolution. And that tool is a vanguard revolutionary party that seizes power, rather than just wait for the proletariat to take it, wait for this great evolutionary forces to happen. So the vanguard revolutionary party seizes power and eliminates all obstacles in the way of the revolution. And that, of course, is the model that every single dictator from Lenin to the very last one in charge of the PRC in North Korea today will emulate, although much of the talk is always about Marx. Mussolini is probably the second one to carry out the revolution with his March on Rome in 1922. He too is very much inspired by Lenin and that model of the vanguard revolutionary party. I think possibly tools, new techniques of seizing power, attempting a coup are fundamental to this whole history of the rise and spread of dictatorships in the 20th century. And what about the role of technology and particularly communications technology here? Did that enable dictatorships, if you like, to give them an extra vector? They were clearly people who had a particular drive or a belief system or a desire uh, to control others and, as you say, to get rid of any checks and balances to that. To what extent do you think that they are modern to the extent of being enabled by communication? I would say that there are enabled, but certainly from Mussolini to start with, all the way down to Xi Jinping, who likes to build up a, a modern surveillance state, all of them are extremely savvy and 
keen to deploy modern technologies. In the case of Adolf Hitler, of course, we know that he was a good speaker and seized on radio with the help of his uh, minister of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, to make sure that his voice was literally everywhere with loudspeaker pillars erected in cities and, of course, mobile loudspeakers taken to the countryside. You simply couldn't um, escape from his voice. When Joseph Goebbels failed to make him the star of a series of movies, he turned to Leni Riefenstahl, a female producer who made him the star of movies that were shown in every theatre throughout Germany. So, um, other dictators have very much done the same thing, always keen to exploit these modern technologies as much as they can. But ultimately, technology, of course, is neutral. You can use it, for instance, in the case of the internet uh, in the People's Republic of China, you can use it to close down debate and even close down an entire country or you can use it to promote discussion, checks and balances, transparency, openness. I'm thinking as you're talking that the extra salt in the stew, if you like, that you have to have to be a dictator as opposed to be a strong authoritarian or an autocrat is a personality cult or being the star in your own movie to an extent. And this is something that often puzzled me. So give me an answer to this. I, I covered the Old East Germany for a long time. When the Berlin Wall fell, there was then a bit of an argument and it still goes on to this day in some ways about what the country had been or the bit of a country that called itself a country. I would not have used the word dictatorship about it, though I was very unforgiving of its repression. Was I living in a dictatorship or wasn't I? Some people thought it was. Well, again, I think it goes back to the definition of uh, the users of power. Is, is, is power being separated out uh, or not? Is it being concentrated? Is there one party in charge? Is there an independent judicial system? No, it didn't have any of that, which I, I think you know. <laughs> but So it didn't. But what it didn't have was, I mean, Eric Honecker wasn't blaring from every loudspeaker. So it was rather different to anything. I mean, for the, the old uh, Stalin cult had been around, obviously, in, in the 50s, as it uh, was latterly even in the wake of, of Stalin's death had to be sort of cleared out in a, in a way in the Soviet Union. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is I, I understand that a country like the old East Germany or a lot of the Eastern Bloc fulfills some criteria, but not others. Whereas Ceausescu in Romania does seem to fulfill your criteria. So am I right in saying that that is the difference? A kind of, you know, to put it you know, too positively to those concerned, but a star quality. You can be a perfectly boring leader and still have a perfectly well-functioning dictatorship. And surely East Germany, if it's remarkable in any one way, it would be through the extent to which the Stasi controlled the lives of ordinary people and files on just about everyone. Well, they also had a file on the dictator, which, which would, would imply that the dictator isn't always all-powerful. Well, that's true. But of course, one-party states, uh, dictatorships are obsessed with secrecy and knowledge and keep tabs on everyone, including the dictator, him or rather rarely herself. So from that point of view, to me, there's not much of a difference. Although I understand the point you're trying to make, there's a vast world of difference between the horror of Stalin and Hitler and, you know, the sort of uh, daily life in East Germany or, or possibly Hungary or even China in the late 1990s. But ultimately, underneath that veneer of respectability, of normality, when some of these dictatorships tone down the loudspeakers to start with and all that intrusion, underneath that concentration of power is always there 
as well as this steely resolve to keep power in the hands of one man or one party state. And you mentioned there something I was just about to come to. Where are the notable women dictators? Have we missed them or does this seem to be a bit of a male pursuit? I'm a firm believer in gender equality and I've no doubt that had women been given equal opportunities, they would have been able to do just as uh, horrific a job as their male counterparts. But of course, the 20th century was a man's world, and to some extent, we are still in a man's world. How can you know that women wouldn't have changed the model, Frank? I mean, that's one claim of certain groups, not and certainly not all feminists, is that power would be different and differently constructed and at the extremes not as nasty if women were running the show, you can't know that we wouldn't be altogether a more enlightened sex. Well, you don't know because it's a counterfactual. But you could go further back and look, for instance, as kings and queens. And there's plenty of research to show that the queens were about as horrendous as the kings and frequently outdid them. Catherine the Great of Russia being a prime example. But what I'm trying to point out here is that while most of the dictators were men, of course, uh, at least in the case of Ceausescu, his wife could plausibly be described as the true leading force in that couple. I knew you were going to come up with Elena Ceausescu. I think she comes the closest, doesn't she, to being to being a kind of joint a joint management of the terribly run Romania of the communist era. How did you choose your eight among many you could have chosen from Africa? I wondered uh, why not Robert Mugabe, for instance. None from the Spanish-speaking world. No Franco, no Pinochet. No, well, that's the problem with picking eight. I could have picked nine or 12 or 32 or 156. There will always be readers who think, but you didn't pick that one. You didn't pick my favourite. So, OK, that's a fair counter challenge. But if you'd had to choose nine and ten, who were the ones that you found it hardest to leave by the roadside? I did start work on Gaddafi just to have someone from the Arab world included. But, you know, I like to work with primary sources. And if I don't know the language, as was the case with Romanian and Ceausescu, I sit next to a person who can help me through the archives by translating parts of it. Now, I can get my head around Romanian. And I had somebody work on Amharic in the case of Mengistu in Ethiopia. But I thought to add another challenging language uh, with Gaddafi was just a bit too much. You mentioned Mugabe, but then again, you know... <laughs> It comes back to the definition of a dictator. Mugabe spent his life fighting the opposition and in the end of his life started fighting the judicial system, which apparently was independent enough to criticize him. The point I'm trying to make is that with a true dictator, there is no such thing as an independent judicial system. So Mugabe would not have been a good candidate. Well, let's take the dictators that, that we have before us in your book and look at how they rise and fall. The title is How to Be a Dictator, which I have to say is a great title for a show called The Economist Asks. You've talked about getting rid of checks and balances. You have to take over your free press or at least push it right to the margins, the judiciary, etc. You also need at least the illusion of support. But surely you must have some real support to be able to get into a position where you can take power or at least hope to do so Credibly. So to what extent do populations, in a way, accept or invite the dictator through the door? Of course, they must build it up. Some arrive to power because it's handed to them. In the case of Stalin, of course, it is Lenin who carried out the Bolshevik Revolution and more or less hands over power to Stalin. It's a little bit more complicated than that, of course. Uh, others arrive with the support of a massive 
army. In the case of Mao, for instance, he manages, after four years of a very bitter, brutal war of conquest, to obtain power in 1949 and raise the red flag over the Forbidden City. But surely among these dictators, the one who is probably the most interesting in that he achieves most with the least support is Papadoc Duvalier. He presents himself in the 1950s when the military feel obliged to hold sham elections. He presents himself as an utterly ordinary doctor who's concerned about the fate of his patients in the countryside, a man who wouldn't threaten a fly. And he uses that image to have the military pick him and they support him. And within a year, he manages to purge the army and set up his own militia. He's ultimately, what I call in the chapter on Duvalier, he's ultimately a dictator's dictator. <laughs> he rules virtually on his own, a gun on his desk. He rules through fear, but ultimately without a true party, without a true army, without a true network of accomplices. Quite an achievement. You write naked power has an expiry date, which I suppose is one of the more hopeful takeaways of this account, which is as fascinating as it is. I mean, the, you, the amount of grim fates and, and corpses by the side of these stories does occasionally come to mind when we incline to sort of get a certain amount of jollity out of comparing them. But what brings down a dictator? What connects their downfalls, if indeed anything does, because you do have quite a, a disparate bunch. A lot of them, unsurprisingly, you've chosen a, a lot of them who stayed in power a very long time. Uh, Joseph Stalin, 31 years. Uh, Mao Zedong, 27 or so. When they fall, is it a similar fate in the end? Of course, that's the true bias in my work, is that I pick dictators who were relatively successful. <laughs> we know very little about the dictators who only lasted a day because they were shot or because they organized a coup that failed. So in that sense, these are very successful dictators. Uh, several died of natural causes. Stalin, of course, died in his own pool of urine, but nonetheless of natural causes. Mao in his own bed. Two of them managed to install their own family as successors. Kim Il-sung led to a whole generation, a dynasty of, of three Kims. We are now at Kim, Kim III, as I call him. And, of course, Papa Doc, François Duvalier, managed to install his son, Claude Duvalier, who was referred to as Baby Doc. So some of them actually tend to, to last quite a while. But I think ultimately all of them fall. And what makes them fall, I think, is an extraordinarily complex set of circumstances that vary from case to case. So you really can't generalize. But ultimately, it's when the fear evaporates that people turn against their dictators. In the case of Ceausescu, you can trace it almost down to a minute. And it's a minute that has taken decades to arrive as this population in Romania is terrorized by the Securitate, lives in fear, is compelled to acclaim the leader, and then at a great gathering in front of the party headquarters, just a few days before Christmas 1989, Trusescu addresses the crowd, and the crowd starts booing him and jeering him, which they haven't done for decades, and he's completely taken aback. He falters, his voice shakes, he starts making promises about improving working conditions and wages for factory workers. At that point, ordinary people out there realize this has been televised. They realize that this man has faltered. The fear is gone. And of course, they assault the party headquarters. 
the television screens go blank. Everybody in that country knows that a revolution is underway. A few days later, he and Elena Ceausescu are shot against one of those dirty toilet blocks. What about dictators who might be seen credibly as having improved in part the lot of their countries? You could even start with Ataturk in Turkey, Tito in the old Yugoslavia, having covered the dissolution of, of Yugoslavia and the conflict. I always find him a fascinating and very ambivalent figure, still harked back to by those on the sort of Titoist uh, end of, of the spectrum politically even today. Franco might be a, another example. No one is saying that they were fair leaders or that they allowed pluralism, but they did, to some extent, improve their countries. Where do they figure in your account? It's a very difficult debate to have. Stalin is acclaimed for having crushed the Germans, but he was the first one to sign the pact with Hitler in the very first place. <laughs> so he, he invited the invitation to the Soviet Union by signing a pact with Adolf Hitler against the, the wishes of, uh, of all of those around him. You know, you could say that Adolf Hitler built highways. Some say that he was kind to his dog. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to counter-challenge you, Frank, and say I think that's a different category. That's a sort of... Yeah, there are sometimes somewhat benign side effects from terrible dictatorships, but that is, that's not really the case of an Ataturk or even a Tito, is it? Well, I'm not sure Ataturk was a dictator. Again, it goes back to what I said about separation of powers. Did he concentrate powers into his own hands? You will find that in most cases, if there is a so-called benign dictator, it is somebody who doesn't actually concentrate power but allows for an independent judicial system to somehow function more or less, who will allow some transparency of the press. Uh, the one who always comes to mind um, when I think about a potential benign dictator, quote-unquote, uh, would be the case of Portugal, of course, with Salazar. He might have been one who who would have helped Portugal to somehow transition from an empire to a modern state. But even there, if you scratch under the surface, that you probably will not find an awful deal of mass murder, but there is corruption, there is abuse of power, and of course what happened in the colonies was quite atrocious. And in the end, even in the case of Salazar, People did stand up with the Carnation Revolution in the early 1970s and did overthrow him. You can always point at something positive. You're talking to us from Hong Kong, where you teach. That is a territory that brings up the question of what raw power, questionably or otherwise dictatorship, might look like today in the 21st century. So let me ask you, to what extent do you think China is a dictatorship now? Well, it says so in the Constitution. It's always been since 1949. Not only is it a dictatorship, but they're very proud of it too. At no point has any leader in the PRC, or North Korea for that matter, talked, envisaged, mentioned separation of powers. From the very beginning, with Mao Zedong and then Deng Xiaoping onwards, uh, every single leader has been crystal clear about the need to maintain absolute concentration of power. Aren't you mixing up dictatorship of the party there, the old dictatorship of the proletariat, the original phrase, with dictatorship of a person? Unfortunately, it's not much of a distinction 
because somebody has to be in charge, otherwise it's not a dictatorship. Even when in practice a committee rules or a party rules, there must by definition be someone who will make these decisions. I mean, you can't have a planned economy, for instance, and change the plan every two, three years. You must have somebody who makes the decision. You seem pretty clear China is a dictatorship. It's crystal clear. It says so itself. But some things have changed and some people talk about Xi Jinping as having tightened power, the grip on power. And and he also, there was a bit of a period, I think it's sort of slightly knocked back now, of what looked a bit more like a return of personality cult around him. So do you think that he's more or less of a dictator than those who went before him in recent Chinese experience? I'm always bemused by this idea that somehow China is or was not a dictatorship. At what point? When the tanks were sent to Tiananmen Square in 1989? Where's the independent judicial system? Where's the freedom of press? When has there ever been any since 1949? It's a classic Stalinist one-party state. It has created, maybe, the illusion that it is open. It refers frequently to its own past, the last 40 years, as the era of reform and opening up. But you shouldn't believe everything these people tell you. Clearly, it has not opened up. Ideas cannot go into China. You cannot Google things in China. Hong Kong, you're you're speaking to us, obviously, from there. We're all waiting with bated breath to, to see how the standoff on the streets of Hong Kong works out. In the first week of this year, the new year, China has replaced its top man in Hong Kong with a known enforcer, Lu Huining, who's known for rooting out corruption, clamping down on Buddhist communities in Tibet, etc. What do you read into that about Beijing's plans? I don't read very much into it at all. It always changes people around here and there. But ultimately, what we can see is that Beijing has been pretty powerless when it comes to Hong Kong. That seems odd for a dictate. You've just described an all-powerful dictatorship. That's not necessarily a contradiction. There are plenty of dictators who may not be all that powerful. And this is a very good example. If you look at the book, you will also see that there's something about paranoia and hubris. Dictators are constantly afraid of outsiders, foreign forces that are trying to, to topple them, subversion at every level. But there's also hubris. They tend to surround themselves with sycophants, So everything is filtered through people who praise them to the skies and they think that ultimately they do control everything and direct everything. And the result is, of course, massive mistakes, sometimes with consequences for millions of lives. For instance, when Stalin signs a pact with Adolf Hitler or when Chairman Mao decides that there will be a great leap forward that results in the death of tens of millions of lives. I think in the case of Xi Jinping, he too has surrounded himself with sycophants. The People's Republic of China, being financially rather insulated, relies massively on Hong Kong and always has, and that hasn't changed. It is afraid of Hong Kong, and it can't do very much about it. It simply is not in a position to send in tanks or undermine the economy of Hong Kong because it depends on it to a very vast extent. Some 60-70% of inward and outward financial investment goes through Hong Kong. There's nothing equivalent to it. Not Shenzhen, not Shanghai, certainly not Macau. If we think about what's going around in the the world today, uh, we have questions over the international order absolutely pressing uh, on our consciousness. We have had uh, the assassination of General Soleimani in Iran and what follows from that. Some people looking at that will be pointing their finger at Iran and saying that is another example through theocracy. 
of a dictatorship, but some people will be pointing a finger at President Trump in the White House and saying that he has dictatorial tendencies himself and has indeed exhibited them in his treatment of Iran. What's your view? You can go around and accuse everyone you dislike of being a dictator, but ultimately it doesn't carry much conviction. If Trump were a dictator, if there were dictatorial tendencies, then he hasn't been very good at it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> look at it this way. If you want to know whether a country is a dictatorship or not, fly to that country and try to find somebody who is critical of the man in charge. My feeling is that if you go to Washington, it'll be very difficult for you to find a newspaper that's actually not critical of Trump. I think there's something called an impeachment going on. On the other hand, if you fly to Beijing or Pyongyang, it might be rather difficult to find even one person who's willing to openly discuss the merits and demerits of the man in charge. In fact, in the United States of America, the National Basketball Association is willing, as it should, to criticize the president of that country, but on the other hand will kneel down and grovel because it fears Beijing. In that kind of scenario, I think you should know where your dictator is. Frank Tikata, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. And we'd love to know what you think. Where's the line between authoritarianism and autocracy? Is China really powerless to act in Hong Kong? And what makes a true dictator? Or is there something of the dictatorial in many of us? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And while we're on the subject of political power, we're launching a brand new podcast. It's called Checks and Balance, and it's about the 2020 elections and the road to power in America. So subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and you can hear the first episode on Friday, January the 24th. I can't wait. That's Checks and Balance for the global view on democracy in America. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.